So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Amir Lebdoui, who is a research fellow at the London School of Economics. Um, so welcome to the show, Amir. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Lev. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Very, very welcome. So today, we're going to talk about a piece that I found on developing economics. I don't know if you initially wrote it for that website, but it's um, it's entitled Debunking the Free Market Miracle, How Industrial Policy Enabled Chile's Export Diversification. I found this article really interesting for a number of reasons, but let's just start off with the myth. What is the myth of the Chilean miracle? First of all, yeah, that study initially is based on a it's from my PhD uh, thesis, actually, and an article was published in Development and Change. And basically, a couple of years back, yeah, I was invited to write this this article, which uh, seemed quite uh, timely, as uh, Chileans uh, have basically voted last month to um, to elect those who will write the new uh, constitution. So the Chilean myth, yeah, it's one of the most enduring myths in uh, developing economics, without a doubt. This is based on, in the 70s dictatorship, the famous uh, mainstream economist Milton Friedman was advising the, the government and trained a lot of people who ended up uh, working for the Chilean government. And he framed the term uh, free market miracle, right? Uh, and even you know, over the, the, the past few decades, uh, several analysts have, have dubbed Chile Kind of a laboratory of free market economics and attributed Chile's success to free market policies. Uh, you know, Chile had achieved you know moder- moderately high growth rates. It actually achieved a high income status joining the ranks of you know OECD countries. Uh, so this is basically the foundation of you know the Chilean kind of free market, uh, the myth of the of free market miracle in Chile. And let me try to lay out the history a little bit, and I want you to correct me where I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but my understanding from your work is that there's the coup, and in 73, Pinochet comes to power, the military dictatorship implements free market policies, and then by 1983, there is, there's economic crisis, and they shift away from these free market policies. Is that is mm-hmm. that the story? So, uh... In very broad terms, yes, sort of. There was kind of several crises, actually. Uh, I would rec- I would highly recommend to to those who are interested in this, Davis, who has basically written extensively, right, on that process and different crises that were co- caused by uh, free market policies in in Chile. So the government came with a free market agenda, right? Uh, mostly kind of discontinuing a lot of the policies that were previously implemented. And this caused, you know, a series of, of crises. Uh, and in fact, rather than one of the outcomes of this initial kind of round of, of, of free market policies was that, you know, the kind of import of machinery and equipment dropped, the import of consumer goods increased, and that created a balance of payment problem. Now, we don't exactly know kind of whether this is, I mean, this is kind of, we suppose that the reason why industrial policies were uh, the state intervened later on is, is kind of the realization, right? That that uh, free market policies had uh, failed in some regards. But I have to stress that the use of state interventions in Chile at the time was, despite being you know quite effective, 
was not a key part of the Pinochet uh, regime, right? And it was not necessarily systematic or uh, across the board. There were a few instances in which uh, it had been used, and it has been extremely successful. And some of those things actually uh, rely on, uh, had actually started before the Pinochet regime. So actually some of the successes were attributed to the accumulation of human capital and, and productive capabilities uh, that occurred before uh, the, the, the dictatorship and the fruits were kind of, you know, uh, reaped uh, later on. I'm wondering if you could, if you could, could get into some specifics. What were some of those policies that were initiated before Pinochet and then which ones are, are maintained and, and which ones in particular are highly successful? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, the four kind of key sector that emerged in Chile's export basket outside of copper, which are forestry, salmon, fruits, and wine, all benefited, right, in one way or another from state interventions. And then, but all differently, right, and in different to different extents. Now, the sectors that in, that where the, the, the where the state intervened the most were the salmon and forestry sectors. And what is really interesting is that the narrative of what happened is very important, right? The kind of mainstream, there is still a different narrative in, in explaining some of those interventions. For example, I think the forestry sector is the one where interventions were the most obvious, especially during the, 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 the so-called free market uh, government of, of, of Pinochet. But this is basically a sector in which the central bank had offered uh, subsidized uh, credit to basically for the plantation of a, of a particular type of, of pine, of, of a particular type of tree, the radiata pine. And later on, also basically de facto imposed restrictions on the exports right, of raw wood. So this was a way to actually distort prices in a way to encourage the local processing of that wood into you know, cellulose and, and paper and, and furniture and so on. The salmon sector is a slightly is a different story uh, because it basically emerged thanks to Fundacion Chile, which is a semi-public, semi-private agency. Now it behave it behaves like you know a public kind of a, a non-profit uh, public technology transfer agency. But obviously, kind of the counter view that you often hear is that oh, but this is not state intervention, right? Because it's also semi-private. But the important part is that it behaves very much like a state agency. And it effectively, what it does is that it identified sectors that had really high potential, right, for, for Chile and where private investment were suboptimal. And basically, before that, there were some attempts at developing a salmon sector, which had failed. It was a context in which, you know, the, the Japanese also wanted to increase the production of salmon somewhere as the production of the salmon production in, in the Soviet Union was, was dropping. So there was a window of opportunity, right? But market forces alone could not enable this to emerge on its own because there was a lot of uh, upfront cost, right, in trying to, to make it work. So what this agency did is that they actually tried over several years or a, a process of trial and error to identify what are the best conditions to, to, to farm salmon in Chile. And when they eventually succeeded, they made it open access, business plan, the technology and so on, so that others could follow. The other sectors where the state intervened, one of them is the, um, yeah, the fruit uh, sector. And again, so in the kind of mainstream perception is that this was not necessarily a state intervention because it, it was mostly the fruit of, uh, I mean, the pun was not intended, but it was mostly the result of uh, called the Chile California program, right? To send Chileans to study in, in California. And then those people, when they got back, uh, basically 
enable to, to increase the productivity of the sector. But looking back, you know, at the archives, you realize that this program had a governmental origin, right? The, the Chilean government already in the 30s had identified that this is a promising sector for Chile, that, you know, because of it's in the Southern Hemisphere, they could actually produce for the market in the Northern Hemisphere, kind of counter-cyclical way. And so the, this is where the idea emerged, right? And then the state actually approached the um, USAID and, uh, and, and other partners to actually develop this program. Uh, and in the wine sector, this is the one where the state intervened the least, but there's still some types of in, in state interventions which were kind of more horizontal programs, right? That means that they were they applied to different sectors. But this is still state intervention for several reasons. The first one is it benefited from several government programs, which were about basically increasing phenosanitary standards, which were clearly about kind of helping the export of foodstuff. Secondly, this was a sector that had existed in Chile for, for, for centuries, but was never export-oriented, right? It's only after those government programs came into place that the industry was able to, to thrive. There were obviously some foreign investors in the process, but uh, many government, government programs helped uh, achieve the, the success that, that the Chilean wine sector is today. And sorry, maybe I missed it, but copper? Well, copper, that's the, yeah, that's, that's the other uh, kind of big sector. But so the reason I didn't mention it is because, well, this is actually a sector, I mean, it didn't emerge thanks to government uh, intervention, right? This is a copper that, this is, a, I mean, this is not resource that, that uh, exists in the country anyways. But the interesting things to mention there is that when Salvador Allende nationalized copper, the state-owned copper firm, Codelco, basically there was a lot more efforts towards value addition, right? Which means there were a lot more firms involved in the processing of copper, right? Or it's refined copper or value-added goods like copper cables, and also in terms of local content. But over time, basically, uh, what is interesting is that the Pinochet regime did not kind of revert that decision, right? Until today, this is still a state-owned uh, agency. But over time, copper production was increasingly uh, led by foreign firms. The sector where the government has, has been very shy in intervening, right? Uh, has mostly adopted a laissez-faire approach uh, over the past decades, right? In terms of trying to promote local providers of, of goods and services and so on. And this is this, one of the sectors with, you know, very, the lowest value added, right? I mean, there are some efforts in terms of, of, of local content, but very little, of the copper is, is, is processed. Yeah, this is a big question about development economics in general, but uh, you mentioned a few times today, value added. Mm -hmm. Again, please tell me if, if I'm wrong here, because I'm, I'm not a development economist. My understanding, and this is like really broad, but my understanding of how countries can develop is that you wanna, you wanna add as much value as you can domestically before before you export the goods. So in other words, you don't want to be exporting lots of raw commodities, but you want to be processing yeah. them and adding value in your own country. Is that more or less right? Um, basically, it depends, right? Uh, sometimes there are great opportunities, right? In terms of value addition, you generate more local value that leads to more jobs, more income, and more linkages to other sectors that can help you diversify your economy further. But it's not always the case, right? Sometimes it's not, yeah, it can be a bad idea, right? Especially 
not only if you lack the local, the right conditions and skills to do it, but also if there are very little kind of margins in the processing uh, or if the competition for processing is too high. But generally speaking, value addition. So this is actually, you know, this idea of, of not wanting to export raw material is, a, is, is, a, is an argument that has existed for actually almost 70 years uh, by a Latin American the first time this was really addressed was by Raul Prebisch, uh, an Argentinian uh, economist, showing that if you only export kind of primary commodities, basically your balance of trade is going to reduce, your, the terms of trade are going to reduce over time. Over time, you know, you see that the countries that have managed to, very few countries have managed to properly develop and diversify while only exporting raw materials. Even in the Middle East, right, fossil fuel exporters over time, you can see that there is a relative income decline compared to the US. And obviously, you know, the counter argument to processing commodities is always that, oh, but, you know, we lack the local conditions. It's, it's not viable yet. But I think what we learned from many countries that have attempted those efforts is that if, you, if there are the right type of vision, the right type of government support, this can lead to really thriving kind of industries, right? Um, so I've also done work on Malaysia. And this is really interesting, right? Because this is a country that exports basically rubber, palm oil, uh, oil and gas, but with great degrees of value addition, right? They, really, they export basically refined palm oil, biomass and so on. Same with rubber, right? Not just natural rubber, but then synthetic gloves and tires. And in the oil and gas, mostly basically value-added oil and gas, basically lubricants, uh, diesel and so on. And same with the kind of local supply, right? They develop a network of local suppliers for these different industries. But at the time that they were trying to do this, you can see there are several analyses now say, actually stating that this is just not going to work, right? That they, the Malaysians don't have expertise in refining petroleum or refining palm oil. And they met great deal of resistance. But, over, but they had the vision, right? That they actually wanted this to work. And the state intervened heavily in those uh, in those sectors to actually make it work. And today, I mean, those processing sectors in, in, in the three industries I mentioned are some of the most competitive in the world. So this shows that you kind of sometimes kind of you need to really swim against the current in order to thrive. Similarly, you know, uh, like, like a salmon, which is ironically one of the sectors <laughs> that Chile has developed, right? Mostly thanks to government interventions and that would not have developed through market forces alone. You know, curiously, at least to me, the Chilean government after 1990 progressively starts to back away from some of these these successful state interventions. Why do you think that is? Well, yeah, that's a, that is a very good question. So the return to democracy has, yeah, has been correlated with, you know, the progressive abandonment of industrial policy tools and the kind of, you know, a much more... Uh, emphasis on neoliberal fundamentals. I'm not sure how to explain this, but this could be kind of linked with, you know, the increasing copper revenues, a rise in copper prices, and maybe the idea that, you know, kind of you didn't have to do uh, as much, right, as before in order to generate revenues. But I also think that it may have to do with the fault created in the decades previously, right, or, or, around the success of, of the free market miracle. So in a way, you know, the, the kind of need, we need to distinguish the good from the bad and the ugly, right? Uh, there were some failures 
there are some successes. And actually, if you look at the details, realize that, I mean, most of the crises that had occurred were the result of really abrupt free market policies where the some of the successes were actually linked to government interventions. But obviously at the time, this was not the official narrative. And hopefully today, there is kind of momentum for change. One thing to mention about Chile is that basically the constitution does not allow for consecutive presidential mandates. And I think this is really an obstacle for industrial policy. Industrial policy requires long-term vision, right? Planning not just for the five years ahead, but for the next 30 years. And in Chile, even Bachelet was the one that tried, the, the Bachelet government is the one that tried the most to bring back some of these industrial policies. But, you know, Piñera came back and basically dismantled those, uh, those projects, including the, the industrial cluster project. When the Bachelet government, when Michel Bachelet came back, you know, they were even more shy about, you know, kind of bringing back some of those policies because they anticipate that, you know, if uh, Pinera's government come back, they will dismantle it again. So this is not really a good uh, environment, right, for long-term planning. And, well, we'll see if what happens next, but there might be, it seems that there is appetite for the return of coherent industrial policy uh, in the policy agenda. Thank you.